What's up, everyone? Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. Well, a few weeks back, I had a chance to speak with Kazi Shakti, who I've just kind of known in the online space and who I've thought is interesting and brilliant. Uh, she's an artist who does computer modeling, 3D scanning, digital fabrication, and interestingly brings together Whiteheadian thought, Marxist political economy, Buddhist soteriology, ecofeminism, and so on. Uh, she's got a blog that I think is really great called Hollow Poesis. And yeah, this was just a freewheeling discussion where I came completely unprepared. Uh, I probably had too much to drink, as maybe you'll hear. Uh, but I think we ended up having an interesting conversation nonetheless about dreams, gender, the possible confluence of deconstructive slash death of God, radical theology, with Buddhist notions of emptiness, process thought, and magic, among other things. Kazi is also an associate researcher with Oscillations, uh, which has published some interesting stuff. I actually designed a logo for them that I think is really dope, but they ended up not using it for some reason. So whatever. Kazi is also currently running a reading group that meets each Sunday. Uh, they're working through Whitehead's process and reality. The group is sponsored by the Cobb Institute, and I'll link to where you can find that. Um, I think there are a couple chapters in, but I don't think it's too late to jump in. I haven't been able to join, unfortunately. Uh, but one of the things that I've heard over the years about that particular text is, uh, you know, you should avoid reading it alone. That reading it with other people makes it more transparent. So. If you've ever wanted to read Process and Reality with a group of awesome people, this is a good opportunity to do that. All right, check us out on Patreon. And that's all I've got to say about that. Here's Kazi Shakti. Thanks for uh, agreeing to just randomly talk to me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, this happens every once in a while with different people. And I think right? it's always nice to make connections, uh, especially because I seem to make friends with people who are in a kind of like process, new materialist, maybe panpsychist, affect theory, and maybe like some Deleuze. Yeah. I find myself making friends with a lot of people like that, even though I'm 80% in Buddhist philosophy. So that's like very interesting to me to see what kind of people who are predominantly looking at Western sources, which ones seem to be more, have more affinity with like some of my Buddhist thoughts. That's interesting. Right. Like who are my people? Why am I attracting this particular kind of person? Yeah. It's an interesting question. I, I think this is a, uh, a function of my borderline personality disorder, but I can walk into a room and find the most damaged person within five minutes and immediately kick it off with them. <laughs> Which, by the way, I am not suggesting that you're at all damaged. I, I was just curious to learn more about you. I know you've had this Buddhist background, which is not something that I'm super familiar with. Like I've read some Kyoto School, and I read one of the books that you recommended. Hold on, let me grab it. Hold on. Oh, is it Rupert uh, Gusson's The Foundations of Buddhism? Yes, it is. Okay. And then I... I think you were talking about this one. And so I picked it up, Emptiness and Becoming. Awesome. Yeah. So I actually read that in his dissertation form last year. Nice. And it has massively 
influenced my thinking. Mm. It's like one of the integral books for me, definitely. Uh, and it's just a masterful work. Um, there's a good amount of handful of concepts that are like very thematic in the text. And once you really get into it, you find yourself using those themes. Um, I find myself using these themes pretty consistently, uh, sort of thinking in terms of like symmetrical versus asymmetrical relationships of dependence which is like really key in this text. There's a you know mutual relationship of dependence, but there's also unilateral dependence. Um, and then there's like almost like a third category that's a little bit even more, um, kind of a combination of the two. But I think one of the coolest concepts in, in the text is this concept called inclusive transcendence. And it's basically this idea that any kind of conceptual contrast, any kind of like binary opposition, those two are abstractions from something that's more concrete. And that's like a very like basic idea. I think that comes up in a lot of different ways and a lot of different thinkers. But um, in terms of uh, seeing Whitehead and uh, Nagarjuna in particular uh, together, this like concept is something that Peter Kackle, I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, really like honed in on. It's kind of like a logical relation, but there's so much that comes out of it in terms of ethics too. Like what's an ethics of inclusive transcendence, right? It's like, how do we deal with binary oppositions without giving into it or without dismissing it? Right. No, absolutely. I want to circle back to some of that stuff, but I was curious about you, um, if you don't mind. I don't know what you feel comfortable talking about, but... Um. I'm curious about you as a person and, you know, not only your sort of intellectual trajectory, but I mean, I think it's okay to say you're a trans person, right? Yeah, I, I'm a trans woman, uh, okay. transsexual female. I don't know if you'd be willing to, but I'm super interested in just hearing something about that trajectory or development. Um um, well, well, you approach it very nicely, and, and that's that's what's key. Um, you seem like you have good intentions for asking. <laughs> um, do people do people have bad intentions for asking? Um, it's always ambiguous. Sometimes it's like the way people approach it, like the word choices that they might use, is mm -hmm. like um, sort of indicative of their intentions. Sometimes, yeah. um, the biggest giveaway sometimes is like the level. Like sometimes it's like a kind of accusatory kind of tone sometimes Ooh, okay. like sometimes like so uh, like um uh, what are you kind of thing <laughs> like that's Do you get that um every once in a while yeah not oh. often but you know it's enough to just make me think like okay like who's thinking it but not saying it things seem to be getting better actually as my transition keeps going um mm. I, don't know, I guess i'm making good headway there so people seem to have a less hard time telling sometimes but I feel yeah. like once I open my mouth you can immediately tell <laughs> but anyway I was gonna say um so I do like a lot of this theory stuff and it's like very important for my work but like I my vocation I like predominantly identify as an artist like I went to school for art um it's like sort of the foundation of how I sort of understand everything in a way as a sort of creative process and so I, I often see my thinking as a sort of a creative process I don't try to get too strict with this, um, but in, in reference to my own thought, I don't really consider what I'm doing, or at least I try not to do philosophy and more so try to do like constructive theory. Yeah. And there's like a reason for that without getting too much into it. And, you know, when I don't have to elaborate what the heck I'm doing, you know, I'll accept 
you know, the philosophy label, but sure, sure. convenience. But I, I just make that point to show that even when I'm doing theory, I'm very much trying to do uh, a sort of creative, constructive process. I'm mm-hmm. trying to create tools to help us analyze rather than like, you know, doing metaphysics to like uh, figure out truths about the world or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is like probably fine, but just not what I'm doing, I guess, or not what I intend to do. So, yeah. So like creativity and being an artist is like a huge part of my life. And I think in a way that does feed into my transness in a way the thing about my transness is that it's very much at this point at this stage of my life I've just come to the conclusion or not a conclusion but I've come to the acceptance that it's fundamentally inexplicable I have no idea why I'm trans I don't understand where it comes from if there's any one source it comes from there's probably multiple different factors none of which individually might cause me to be trans but our correlations that sort of arise with me. Who knows? There's so many theses out there. Um, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying because I'm not trans, but I, I am who I am and I can give an explanation, but I'm not sure that that is ever going to be something that's adequate to explain who I am or why I am the way I am, whether that's in terms of sexuality, gender, or, just my disposition towards the world in general. And like, I don't feel like I fucking need to give one at this point. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there was a time when I felt like I needed to do that. And I think there's value in working through those kinds of questions. But ultimately those are questions that that are coming from a place where like, I'm trying to justify myself either to the world or more tragically to myself. (laughs) Um, And just like, I don't know if this is your experience, but you hit a point where you're just like, this is who I am, for better or worse. I'm not sure how we got here, but um, let's just kind of roll with it. Oh, yeah, that's just totally my experience. I, I I had like a quite a battle with myself over a couple of years and trying to figure out whether or not I needed to or if I have to go on hormone therapy. Um, hmm. Eventually it dawned on me that you don't think about this for years and like think that it's, it's not a big thing, hmm. if that makes any sense. I feel like if I really didn't need it, I wouldn't have mulled over it for as long as I did. I guess, like, where do I start without getting, like, too long into it? The earliest sort of sign I can see in retrospect that may have pointed to where I am now is that when I was really small, I would always just notice and be very curious and confused about why men and women were so different and why it seemed like, from my perspective... I'm not saying that this is the case, but it seemed like from my perspective when I was a little baby, little child, that girls were able to dress like boys and more. There was a sense that girls had more freedom to be more expressive. It was just something I noticed and I would like notice often, especially in incredibly elaborate Indian parties. Like, you you know, everyone dresses, well, all the women dress up like fucking goddesses. I don't know if you've ever seen that. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen pictures. I've never actually had the pleasure. Right. So like, you know, just emerald, sapphire colored, like, sorry. Right. Go all like, out. Yeah. Gold embellishment, everything. And the dudes like, you know, they look nice. It's like, you know, like button down uh, dress shirt with like Oxford shoes. Like that's the cool dude look, but it's just compared to these goddesses. It's just like, it was just a whole nother universe. And I would just like always get curious about that, but yeah. it never really bothered me. It was more so like 
huh, isn't that weird? Um, yeah, I can relate to that. The sort of range of aesthetic expression between men and women is something that I've long been aware of as well. It's actually funny. I was talking to my grandmother who passed away a couple of years ago, but I guess it was about 10 years ago. And I was just asking her questions about her life. And I got a lot of the, you know, I'd walk uphill two miles in the snowstorm to get to school, blah, blah, blah. The one thing that stuck out to me, I found slightly shocking was that she was sort of presenting herself in this sort of rebellious way. She's like, I wore pants to school. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And apparently at the time that was like, you know, somewhat scandalous. I just think that's what you and I are sort of pointing at is a reality, but it's a somewhat more recent reality too. Now that's totally true too. Yeah. Um, and it's also interesting and, and something obviously eventually would real would realize too that like, okay, like women now perhaps do have a greater range in their aesthetic expression, but society forces them, forces us to um, have a limited form of expression in terms of you know power and autonomy and so that was like the you know big trade-off I guess um right that was typical as like a little boy would be I guess other than just those questions I had but it wasn't until I hit puberty that things like radically shifted and it's funny because my first like major real crush when I was in the seventh grade rejected me when I like made advances and it was our first time that I had to actually reflect on who I was as a person. Because it's like, and that's really interesting. I feel like that's probably common. Your first major rejection makes you think like, okay, who am I to be someone to be rejected? And, 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 and so, and so <laughs> yeah. I went into like a, a little bit of an email phase because I was like, oh, like I'm not good enough or whatever. Sure. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that I was, um, once I found the sort of emo style, really like got into it, mm. I was almost exclusively inspired by all the more feminine looks, either the hyper feminine scene and emo boys or like emo scene queens. And so I would start to wear women's clothing, tight pants and shirts and like wear makeup. And I just really liked doing it. Mm. And that's all I really like thought of it as, as it was just like my natural creative expression. And this sort of goes back to something you were just saying earlier about having the figure yourself out and justify yourself or something it's like I was not ever doing that until people started demanding answers and that's when things started to get really tumultuous my parents um you know I had a few bullies in school my guidance counselor didn't fully understand me and um I had no idea what like trans was I had not heard about it so I I could not ever name it um I thought like okay maybe I'm bisexual because I can find men attractive and um that's got another like rabbit hole in terms of sexuality for me but I was still predominantly interested in women. I was like, okay, like maybe I'm the super feminine guy, like whatever. It's like, why are people demanding answers? People are like, are you trying to be a girl? And it's like, I don't know. I'm not trying to be anything. So I went through a significant amount of verbal, emotional, and physical abuse at the hands of my parents because of this phase. Um, not a whole lot of physical violence by my bullies, but a lot of persistent taunting every day at school. Eventually, I just like sort of tried really hard to suppress it all. And I took on like a very masculine role. Like my last bit of high school and my first two years of college. Or more like my first year and a half of college. Because it's really like within the, in the middle of the second year of college that I learned what trans was. Okay. And my girlfriend at the time 
Uh, I don't know how it happened, but I think we like just started doing our makeup together. I think I had told her about how we used to be emo and scene and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, do you want to like try again? And so I reconnected with myself to this part of myself that I suppressed because of like my you know, parents and stuff. And I went to school out of state. So that was my opportunity to like be completely autonomous and free. And that's when I realized I was trans. I did not know what kind of trans though. I like I was sort of going through various different kinds of labels, especially because pronouns are such a thing. And the funny thing is that I knew and I could tell and I and I and I noticed this and I would contemplate on it. Okay, when I imagine myself and when I style myself or or the type of people I try to get advice for for transition. It very much seems like I am transitioning to be a transgender woman, MTF, like all the way. But I was incredibly resistant to that for a whole variety of reasons. Sure. I, I didn't feel like I deserved that label. I thought it was like an exalted, like, who am I? Like, even though I feel like I looked decent, I still felt like I could never pass off in any way. And so I was very fearful of that. I was also like just scared of the consequences of it, Mm -hmm. Uh, scared of having to assert myself to say something that a lot of people frankly think is absolutely ridiculous. Um, It's all these things that I had to eventually come to terms with and, and realize it really doesn't matter what all these people say or might think. I see it more in terms of approximating certain characteristics in mind, body, and speech that just so happened to fall under the label woman. And within those conventional terms, I will say, and I will assert pretty confidently that I'm a woman. And if I have to qualify, okay, I'm a transsexual woman. But for me, and this is something I I realized eventually and why it was okay for me, is that um, my pursuit of these characteristics in terms of mind, body, and speech came before this like need to be seen as a woman. Um, and so many times, even people who are sort of allies, they have this misconception that it, like, it starts with this sort of, and maybe it does for some people, but for me, it never really started with, oh, like I'm actually a woman and then everything else I do follows from it what kind of psychophysical constitution that I feel like best embodies my sense of what I want to feel in the world, but also how I want people to relate to me. And I'm like both attracted to it, but I'm also like going to this place that I obviously feel better in, but also I feel like compelled as well. And so this is kind of interesting. So what really catalyzed my whole transition process, because there's a point where with my first girlfriend who is straight, who helped me get into transition, but quickly realized that it's not going to work out. She's not clear. Um, But that was super tumultuous because we loved each other and we were together for like four years. And I was doing a lot of unhealthy um, back and forth, like tug of war with myself. I would like grow out my hair for two years and just like cut it all off and do that over and over again. And it was very exhausting for both of us. But something happened that made me not only realize, but no longer like do this back and forth anymore. And that was his dream I had. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And All right. Was, no, I, I got to hear about the dream. <laughs> I, the most odd and profound things happen in dreams. Go for it. Yeah. So but what's also funny is that this same exact dream also catalyzed my Buddhist path. 
Please bring it all together for me. So it's actually a pretty simple dream, but it's one of the most vivid dreams I can recollect. The only thing that comes close to that is this series of dreams I would have when I was little of green alien people like chasing me in my apartment. I don't know why that and this dream are the most vividly recollectable. But anyway, that was just like a random tangent. But so in this dream, I wasn't an entity in the dream. I didn't feel like I was an entity. I did have a like a singular perspective. Okay. But I didn't have a sense that I was a character in this dream. I was kind of like this omnipresent observer. All right. Um, kind of like I was watching a movie, actually. Um, mm. That's like a good experience of it. And so imagine this red, yellow, um, orange, sunset, desert kind of landscape. Or not even desert, just like the landscape is very simplified. And there's a very long river that comes from the horizon to the foreground and in the foreground uh maybe just like off to the side stage uh, left right yeah yeah um and so imagine there the, the the river leads to a waterfall but it's the waterfall is upside down so that's like an interesting thing so the the water was coming from the horizon to the foreground leading to an upside down waterfall that's dope um eventually i don't think like much time had passed but you start to notice little figures from the horizon coming down the river in the river it was like a very small river it's very picturesque not like a you know giant real river Eventually, what you see is like a legion, almost like a Roman legion of orcs, of like <laughs> masculine, of like very masculine, hulky, bulky, like orcs. Yeah. And they're dragging something that's tied up by rope they're right. and they're dragging it through the water. And eventually, when they come close enough, what you see is what looks characteristically like a Hindu Buddhist feminine goddess of some kind. It's nothing that I think is readily identifable as like this or that, as you know, it was it Tara, was it um, Vajrayogini or whatever, or was it none of them? Like, it was just sort of like, very characteristically like, okay, this looks like it's from Indian art. Um, and she was being pulled through the water and they bring her eventually all the way to the front Mm-hmm. And they start to um, drown her in the un- in the upside down waterfall. So once this starts to happen, I feel a huge sense of alarm. It wasn't really like any words or concepts or anything. It was just like a sense of alarm. Like, mm-hmm. oh my god, like this is this is bad. Something bad's going down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the feeling was that oh, they're gonna they're killing her. But eventually, I I keep paying attention. But and she's completely serene. She's like she's like unfazed, not like really drowning or anything and then my vision gets starts to get a little bright and I start to feel like everything in the picture starts to get really bright and I'm like looking at her and then that sense of alarm immediately Mm -hmm. shifts to Mm -hmm. a sense of reassurance and contentment at first I thought something was happening something bad was happening but um now I can clearly see that, oh, nothing is bad is happening and nothing bad is going to happen. Like, she's way too powerful. Like, this is just a play. Like, she's probably, like, just laughing inside. Like, this, this. So I felt just very reassured. And yeah. that's when I woke up. Either that's when I woke up or that's as far as I can remember the dream. But I woke up sort of immediately recognizing one sort of theme mm-hmm. that um, was really important, which is that at that time, like I was saying, I was doing this really unhealthy oscillation between do I want to be what my girlfriend wants me to be or do I want to be what I want to be mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. And for me, this, this dream was sort of telling me two things. Not only do I have to be me, 
which mm-hmm. is like this goddess, but that I have no choice. And that that this this is like, like an indestructible process. Around this phase, like I started actually studying Buddhism and also all the Eastern philosophy and stuff. And I was really attracted to the idea of no self in Buddhism. But I was weaponizing it against myself, saying, okay, if there's no self, then there's no gender. And so there's no reason I can identify as a trans woman. And I would tell myself that, like, okay, I will respect trans people. So I was a little transphobic too. I was like, I'll respect people's pronouns, but like I don't understand it. Like I I, I don't know how it's possible. It's like right. to, to really be this or that. Um But yeah, so I was like really fighting with myself and basically using philosophy, using my form of expression as a way to sort of snuff out this, what I eventually realized just unstoppable process that I almost have no say in. It's just who I am. It's just what's happening. And so I kind of have to let go to that. So I was mostly following the gender themes of the dream for a while until it started to really dawn on me that, oh, wait a minute, but like she was also a kind of Dakini of sorts, like a Hindu slash Buddhist goddess. Mm-hmm. This character in your from your dream, yeah. Mm-hmm. This this woman, and so so that's when I really started to look into Buddhism even more explicitly, and that's when I found um, not just like basic Buddhist stuff that I was reading, but also like I found Madhyamaka, the Middle Way, and that sort of blew me away. And I was like, oh my god, like I, this, I was, I was coming to this like my whole life, mm-hmm. um, and this is it. Prior to that, I was really into panpsychism because I found panpsychism to be a kind of middle way between mind-body dualism. Sure. So I was already sort of trying to find these sort of middle grounds in different parts of my life. Um, the so, dream sort of catalyzed those two things at the same time. So, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Like, I guess I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about the sort of correlations or correspondences or relation between panpsychism and, and Buddhism. Um, frankly, I don't know Buddhism that well. I, you know, I have a sort of basic familiarity with it. Is there a sort of important functional difference between panpsychism and Buddhism? These are completely compatible, yeah? There's some qualifications that we have to make before we make them compatible. Um, yeah. It can't have too much ontological weight. So my major problem Mm-hmm. which is very, very structural problem. It's not really anything I think can be debated without losing what panpsychism is. Mm-hmm. So panpsychism, fundamentally, if you want to generalize to all various versions of panpsychism, is the ubiquity of consciousness within matter. The, the issue with that from a specifically Madhyamaka Buddhist point of view is that the ostensible entities which have consciousness were posited by consciousness before you said that they have, they're endowed with consciousness. So you're, you're stuck in this problem. It's like, am I talking about abstractions or am I talking about real existence? Sure. And that's where the, the trickiness comes in. Panpsychism almost has to accept that there's this multiplicity of plural entities and they all are endowed with consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, and as long as we can accept this, this sort of, sense of an objective reality of multiple entities, then panpsychism can play. Um, Panpsychism can't play if you don't accept the fact that there is ultimately a multiplicity of entities out there. Now we can say it conventionally, our mode of communication, our form of cognition, these afford us the experience of experiencing multiple entities in a sort of intersubjective field of experience that we call objective. And, yeah. and so in that, in, within that framework, panpsychism, I think is actually very useful to, to sort of uh, as a paradigm shift to sort of understand mind-body relations and um, relations of interdependence and stuff like that. And I think this is important so that panpsychism is used as a sort of pragmatic tool. Otherwise, I think if you 
take too much of this ontological, if you put too much of an ontological weight mm -hmm. on these foundational entities, then panpsychism risks, I think, reverting back to idealism or materialism. Right. The tightrope is too too thin to not mm -hmm. like topple to one side or the other. And you see this, there's bottom-up panpsychism and there's top-down panpsychism. And, and they're kind of like materialism and idealism with extra words, in, in my opinion. Right. I mean, I haven't sort of thought through all the different varieties of panpsychism that you get, but I am curious about it because I think it's a plausible theory. I guess when I was thinking more about this a couple of years ago, I think where I fell out was that pan experientialism was maybe a safer way to go mm -hmm. because panpsychism assumes too much. It's a little bit too anthropocentric saying like, oh yeah, you know, everything has consciousness just like us attributing to everything mind in the same way that we conceptualize mind. So maybe that gets to the point that you were making about the sort of multiplicity or sort of plurality of what consciousness can mean. And so for me, consciousness itself becomes this sort of, not an empty signifier, but one that's too laden with anthropological presuppositions. And so pan-experientialism just sits better with me rhetorically, I guess, maybe even ontologically. I would agree with you. It's definitely a bit of a more primitive notion than consciousness. I think, especially because there's a lot of the intentionality that we ascribe to consciousness. And so, you know, from a panpsychist framework, if you want to like say that there's the sort of proverbial question is a raw conscious in the, in panpsychism right. and, and different panpsychists have different explanations for it. And a lot of people go for like a proto sentience kind of thing. It's like, it's not really conscious, but it's like, it has conscious elements. And kind of All right. So wait, wait, what would you say about a stone kind of bringing together Whiteheadian slash Buddhist perspective? What's the difference between you and a stone? <laughs> um, the difference between me and a stone is that um, as far as I understand, I am a organic entity with multiple interrelated parts that um, mutually support each other as an integral system, whereas a rock is more like an aggregate of min minerals. There is a uh, dynamism. Uh, there, there's a dynamism within all the composite components that make up the rock and me. But whether or not this dynamism is a strictly causal process, an automatic causal process, or if it's driven by underlying occult uh, intentional activity. Mm. Um, I don't think we can ever get that answer. Okay. But, so, but what's important for me is that the appearance of the rock bears significance within the field of my experience. And it can afford me various qualities if I interact with it in a variety of different means. And those interactions may or may not contribute to my overall value project of my own like becoming and everyone who's involved in that. And so for me, the question is less like, what is a rock? And it's like, what may the rock and I do for each other? Fundamentally, I think, and, and this is where like my Buddhism sort of comes in. It's like, it's fundamentally everything I think sort of has to be conditioned by this underlying soteriological aim which is to alleviate okay. suffering and ignorance. And I, I am still interested in, obviously, in epistemology, in ontology, in truth, what are the proper procedures for deriving facts about the world in an intelligible and reproducible and a way based on consensus. Like, all of that is very important. Sure. But, um, but there's no such thing for me as, like, an ultimate truth 
that's independent of any kind of soteriological concern. So that's why everything should be seen in that term. So, so I very much take the Buddha's approach, which is that like, maybe you've heard about this, but there's like this story in the sutra where someone asked Buddha a bunch of metaphysical questions and he's like, okay, let me give an analogy. When you get shot by an arrow and someone says you need to get help, are you going to like try to identify all the like components of the arrow? Like what is doing to your flesh and like, is there any venom in it? Are you going to do all this analytic investigation or are you going to go find a doctor? And, and so that was sort of the Buddha's approach is that like, you know, like, okay, there's only so, so much that this kind of speculation is going to afford you. What is it that really matters here um, kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so that's the sort of kind of approach I take with that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, coming from a more, you know, more Western framework, I don't know if, you've, if you're all familiar with uh, Paul Tillich. A I mean, theologian, right? Yes, a theologian and an onto-theologian for which, you know, some, some people are critical. Hmm. Um, part of his project, Theology of Culture, he defines theology as ultimate concern. Hmm. And I think that goes a long way, if not bracketing, um, displacing uh, the metaphysical question in favor of this question of desire, which is the proper theological question. So I know that Buddhism is not exactly, or maybe maybe I have this wrong, is not exactly theological in the sense that people typically use that term. But I, I think there can be resonances in interesting uh, places. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And what you said about Tillich, whose work I haven't, haven't read, but I've, I've heard the name before, um, that definitely resonates with me for sure, especially like ultimate concern. Like I actually, I like that a lot. Um, and the whole like, can theology apply to Buddhism has been like a question, a contentious topic a little bit. But yeah. um, as far as I'm concerned, there's been a lot of recent contemporary research in not just Western Buddhist studies, but actually genuine dialogue with like um, Eastern thinkers too, Eastern monastics as well, um, which is uh, Buddha nature studies. So you know, really go- going back to the, the sutras and the text on, on Buddha nature, this idea of this intrinsic essence that you know, all sentient beings are endowed with, which is their own Buddhahood. And many scholars are finding that um, actually treating Buddha nature in somewhat theological terms is actually very fruitful. I'm not familiar with those conversations and those debates, but as someone who's more familiar with the sort of existential tradition, I'm not sure what the starting point for thinking about that is, because essence is a sort of dirty word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so can you say something about how those relate? My tradition, which is um, Dzogchen, um, it's like kind of comes out of Tibetan Buddhism, but that's not like entirely accurate. It also sort of predates it, but... Yeah. Um, but it's very much based on a Madhyamaka foundation. And, but what's really interesting is that it goes beyond Madhyamaka in the sense that like, okay, all things are empty. Madhyamaka is like, all things are empty. Be careful when you do ontology. Right. And, and now Zogchen is like, okay, all things are empty. Now we can finally talk about things. <laughs> and, and a lot of people will actually, people who misunderstand Zogchen see it as being risking or sometimes commit the fault of reintroducing Atman into Buddhism, reintroducing a sense of self, because we do talk about the primordial nature, which has an essence, which has an essence, has a nature, and has an energy. We can talk about these things in in ways that surprises a lot of earlier Buddhists. But the thing is, but we don't oppose emptiness. 
emptiness is our foundation. Mm. And so it's almost like we can talk about essences because we are reflexively aware that any essence we're talking about is necessarily empty. You can say essence and just say essence and right. you just know it's empty. And then not just like, no, it's empty, but the way that you use it, the very manner in which you deploy the concept doesn't risk, you know, essentializing because it, you're, you're fully endowed with the, the uh, awareness and understanding yeah. of emptiness. Um, That's fascinating. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying it's a one for one, but I'm reminded of chaos magic wherein the subject is challenged to believe in something, even though they understand that it is completely not supportable metaphysically or demonstrable in any sort of significant sense. And that the very belief or the clothing oneself in the assertion allows for different kinds of creative possibilities. And so you can pray to Superman, you know, or, <laughs> um, you know, invoke Cthulhu if you do so in a state where you are, where you're doing this earnestly, even though if, if there's a certain part of you that understands that this is a, a, a fiction, it's nonetheless a useful fiction. And it's one that you are sort of leveraging to your benefit, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. That's, that's actually the foundation of all practice in Vajrayana Buddhism, I would say. It's, a, it's like a form of method acting your way into Buddhahood. The interesting thing is that from the tradition's point of view, and I think, you know, very much I agree with this, is that it's, it's really the um, recognition and understanding of emptiness or your degree of, under that, of understanding emptiness that actually allows you to deploy techniques like that successfully. Uh, so the, the concern tends to be if there's too much of like, a, okay, I'm doing one thing, but I know it's fake. There's like a bit of a distance here, right. but even that is good enough to like get you started. But if you, you can get to the point where you don't even need that reflexive qualification that you're operating with fiction, it's like you live in a very much fictional world already. And this very much goes to what a lot of, you know, um, Vajrayana Buddhism is about, which is like, you know, seeing the world as an illusion, as a sort of magical display within the sphere of experience. And so once you're in there, you kind of don't have to tell yourself, you're, you know, you're in a fiction. When you're, when you're reading a fictional book, you, you don't have to like keep telling yourself it's fictional. You're just reading it, right? And if you get to that point, then the techniques become that much more effective. But yeah, even at the very foundation, yeah, everyone starts with a sense of like, you know, like like over here, like um, in my shrine, I'm not sure if you can quite see. I sort but, of see it. But there's Manjushri, which is my main practice, sort of bodhisattva deity. And the experience is very much like that. It's like, how real can Manjushri be without being real? <laughs> and, right. and because if you're saying like, okay, here's Manjushri and like, but he's actually just a figment of my imagination, then you're not taking him seriously. Right. Um, right. But then if you're like, you know, completely all over to Manjushri and kind of just forget that like he's actually a appearance within your own mind, then you sort of go to the opposite extreme. Like you sort of take it too literally. And so, again, this is sort of middle way path um, approaching deities, which have concrete effects. And I think that's an interesting angle we can take on religion, distinct from, you know, traditional theism and atheism. It's like the atheist sort of gets a half right. They each get a half right. And they don't, so it's like the atheist doesn't understand these things are effective, even if they're not true. Right. Um, and, and so the atheist, unfortunately, like, 
loses all of these self-transformation technologies or technologies of the self. And likewise, a theist, I think, undermines the efficacy of their own practices because of this sort of fundamentalist orientation to their their beliefs. Yeah, both the atheist and the theist, broadly considered, are sort of both working out from the same epistemological or metaphysical framework. It's like, you know, presence or absence, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, you know, and it's just like, you guys are are like mirror images of each other. And so this is one of the things I think has attracted me so much to, I don't know if you're familiar with radical theology, like death of God theology. Mm. Sometimes people refer to this as like Christian atheism. Which, I've heard that before. Which sounds, yeah, it sounds like a paradox, um, but I think it sort of gets to the heart of, you know, what you and I are getting at in different mm. ways. I think it's really interesting. And like I was saying to you in one of the threads that you had posted recently, I'm sort of curious to think about these possible relations, correlations between emptiness and deconstruction and process as these sort of theological varieties of change and becoming. I'm just sort of intuiting some sort of important or significant relationship there, but I've yet to sort of formalize it. This kind of gets to something that I'm really interested in is to draw these traditions together between process theology and radical theology. I would love your help with that. <laughs> oh, that sounds super interesting. I, I'm, I'm definitely very interested in possible connections between Madhyamaka and deconstruction, for yeah. sure. There's definitely some resemblances there. Uh, I think that the, the biggest and most, I think, stark affinity is a sense that signs and symbols are connected in this infinite web of interrelations and nothing is the foundational ground. There's no transcendental signifier, right? That sort of grounds the relations of everything else. And so you can kind of say every sign is empty because it's it's always referring to something else. So it's like it never stops anywhere. And so that's a huge resonance for sure. And um, a really peculiar resonance in the sense that I think it's like very really good resonance which is like sometimes hard to find i think um you'll find a lot of stuff that does approach buddhist point of view in western philosophy but there's always some kind of like ontological thing sneaking in there um sure but with derrida it's like it's different but at the same time i think the the sort of limit and i want to say this is a critique because i don't think derrida ever meant it to have get to this point so Mm. it's sort of like an innocent absence um but it's it's still a discursive notion yeah, right um whereas for for buddhists it's like okay like now not just signs let's see everything exactly like that but i think deconstruction sort of points to that too because to some extent if we can point to things because we have words then if words are empty then the things that they point to are also empty and so i think it creates the conditions for the kind of experience of emptiness but i want to ask you a little bit more about the death of god theology um sure. When I think when I hear death of God, I, I think Nietzsche. I'm like vaguely familiar a little bit with that concept. Um, yeah. Sort of. Yes, Nietzsche is is an important point of reference when it comes to death of God because in the gay science, somewhere in there, you know, he's got this parable of the madman who leaps into the marketplace and announces the death of God. I mean, Nietzsche, of course, is like extremely hyperbolic and just an edgelord in general. So, (laughs) but he's also drawing on previous rhetorical instances 
And of course, Hegel is, is the first person in the phenomenology. He's the first person to speak of the death of God in strident philosophical terms. So anyway, this idea gets picked up on in, in the Protestant tradition. First in Nietzsche, who I think can be considered a Christian <laughs> in important Wait, ways. Who? Sorry, what? Wait, who can be considered a Christian? Nietzsche. Oh, Nietzsche. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I haven't actually read a whole lot of Nietzsche. Um, I read Birth of Tragedy, which is a weird only text to read by Nietzsche. But, but it was actually for an aesthetics class in college. But um, I always got the sense that he was like an atheist, but also I haven't read him, so I, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair reading. I, I just don't think it's a very close reading. I think it's um, something that's often attributed to him because of the sort of bombastic language that he deploys and the death of God sounds very atheistic. Right. But I think what's happening in that parable and in the, in, in the idea of the death of God in modernity is that the idea of a God and the idea of a transcendental signifier, as you're saying, is no longer plausible. So it becomes this sort of question of, is this a metaphysical proposition that he's making? Is it more of a cultural observation that's happening? I think we can safely say yes to both. And this gets picked up by the quintessential, I guess, death of God theologian, Thomas J.J. Altizer in the 1960s, who he was kind of at the forefront of this death of God movement. And he synthesized Hegel and Nietzsche and Christianity. And um, it's not his first book, but he wrote this book called The Gospel of Christian Atheism. What's interesting about it, it well, there's a lot of interesting things about it, but it's neither a gospel, it's not really Christian, and it's not really atheism. <laughs> interesting. Say like both and neither. Yes. Oh. Yes. And in fact, I guess if I were to recommend something for you to check out in that tradition, yeah. you should take a look at that because I think that is a good entry point into that tradition. And I think it really resonates with some gospel of the things. Gospel of a Christian, gospel of a Christian atheist? Atheism, yeah. A, a gospel of Christian atheism. As I understand it, I have, I'm not that familiar with his later work, but I guess he became more interested with Buddhism and wrote more on that. So I think there's more to talk about there. I'm not sure if that answers your question or not. No, that, that definitely gives a good amount of background. I was I was curious about the Nietzsche connection. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think um, how I sort of have interpreted the death of God thing without like really studying it much, it seems like people definitely still believe in God and, and will and probably will continue to believe in God for a while and definitely that Nietzsche was alive. But there seems to be the sense that like, and I think the fact that this figure um, with the lantern comes into the marketplace is really important. I, there's something with the way that capitalism has sort of radically shifted society's axiological pivot that it's no longer revolving around the divine it's revolving around the mundane and i think this is what like spells the death of god in a way for me and and the way i understand it is not really the abandonment of a transcendental signifier but the the shift from one to another is like from god to capital and right. you see it kind of manifest in these weird ways now with like mega churches it's like 
ostensibly a uh, Christian, but it's, it's clearly all just this one like huge capitalist spectacle. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and it's and it's and it's funny. And actually, my my friend um, earlier today was watching this documentary. My my roommate was watching this documentary. He didn't say much about it. I didn't watch much of it. But he claimed he was watching a documentary on a weight loss church. What's that? It's, it's I guess it's church that um, specifically catered to um, people deemed overweight and Christian, and that by joining this church, helping them and donating money to them and stuff like that, like God, they'll help you, uh, you know get specific services from god to deal with your weight issue <laughs> so this is so basically it's like a, sort of like neo-asceticism right like instead of giving instead, yeah, yeah. instead of spending your money on you know like whatever your fourth hot fudge sunday just just give us that loot <laughs> yeah but i mean it, i didn't look too much into it but i, I brought it up because it seems like another one of those like exploitative cash cows right like yeah. just exploiting exploiting insecure thicker christians to like yeah. get all their money only you know to point to the fact that yeah the way i understand the death of god is oh, everything has shifted to capital now yeah. um everyone works on sunday like nothing stops isn't, isn't that supposed to be the day of rest or something not chick-fil-a <laughs> well, I'm a vegetarian, so I've never actually eaten in Chick Fil A, so I never fell in love with it like everyone else. Maybe that's for good measure. Um, it is. Though I have actually had their sauce, which is uh, actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you can't deny the sauce. Yeah, it's actually funny how many like of my queer and trans friends just like fucking love Chick Fil A. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Yeah, no, for sure. Is there any sort of degree of like self-loathing that comes with that <laughs> they definitely will joke about it like, yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> every once in a while it's like um and and typically if i remember it's always a sauce that like is like a huge bullet point <laughs> yeah for, for why it's so still okay to get from chick <laughs> it's so funny Clear, i mean clearly they're putting crack on that sauce but yeah, that's that's all super interesting, and I'm, uh, and I know Derrida um, definitely draws from Nietzsche a lot, from what I understand. So yes. it makes sense why deconstruction also fit into this. And process relational thinking definitely is always like seems to be a pretty good way of thinking about these sort of things in terms of open change. participate in the whitehead group so if you yeah. ever have like a question or two or concern or you want to voice like an idea that's related to all these different topics i think that would be very fruitful because i think that'll also make things interesting because i'm really interested in why other people are interested in this at all yeah and wait maybe... hold, hold on i'm sorry Cameron, what's up hey wait you want to meet my son i'm sure hi <laughs> uh, how old is he he's five and a half Cute. Do you yeah. have any other children? Not that I know of. <laughs> you? None yet. Um, I can't wait to be a mom, though. That's going to be life-changing. Of course it is. <laughs> yeah. What's um, yeah. actually funny is that I, um, even before I came out as trans, like I kind of like, I've always wanted to be like a mom. Like the idea of like being a dad was always kind of like weird to me. It's like... <laughs> yeah, no, I... I... I sort of get that. I never really wanted. All right, let me lower my voice. I never, <laughs> I never really wanted a son. I wanted daughters. 
but then when he came i was just like this is beautiful Aww. you know yeah i just got over that really quickly because i've well anyway i i don't want to get it too biographical with my own terms of what are we talking about oh whitehead all right so this is the last thing i want to ask you about i've only read it one, how many times have you read process and reality so i read the uh sherburn key mm-hmm. um and i read like i think about three chapters of process and reality before i put it down and i was like this is this is too much i mean it's actually pretty readable yeah but it's also just a lot there's like so many neologisms all the relationships between the different terms and that's when i was like okay there's gonna be a time for this but it's not right now and, yeah. I, and then finally for me at least that the time has come and yeah 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 so I, I read it last year i was advised to skip over the fourth chapter i think it's the chapter on extension if i'm remembering right yeah. uh, oh cool i didn't i didn't know you actually uh, already read it so that's awesome yeah i've read it and um i don't really consider myself a white headian per se I don't know. I have sort of mixed feelings on Whitehead. He's obviously a fucking brilliant, but it's hard for me as a sort of post-structuralist thinker mm-hmm. to really get on board fully with his metaphysic and say, this is the way it is. You know, mm-hmm. I find it useful. I find it interesting. I find it compelling at times, but ultimately, yeah, I want to keep my options open. <laughs> for sure. For me, I found that in terms of explaining experience, since I'm sort of system building, not really like metaphysics, obviously, like I said, but uh, developing sets of tools, mostly to basically understand any individual's relationship to history and society and in, in order to further, you know, political, soteriological praxis. And I've just found that um, that Whitehead's vocabulary is a really useful way of talking about experience and how experience unfolds. So for me, that's like what's really important and interesting. Um, and I, I would agree that some of the more metaphysical side could be dealt with differently. And I think actually the, the Emptiness and Becoming book explicitly deals with that. And, and I think that's the cool thing about bringing Whitehead and Buddhism together is the Buddhism will give us a non-foundationalist skepticism of essences and ontology, but we can still use Whitehead's incredibly elaborate epistemology and almost phenomenology of experience in, in order to at least characterize because we still want to be able to characterize things, um, sure. even, at, you, you know, even as a Buddhist. So Buddhism already takes care of that in a way. So it's mm-hmm. like it has the, the Madhyamaka, anti-foundationalism, but it does also have a very rigorous mm-hmm. uh, logic and epistemology and phenomenology to talk about experience because, you know, meditation and whatever. Right. Um, but the reason why I want to do Whitehead is because I think Whitehead is so embedded in the Western tradition. If I'm going to create a set of tools that is accessible to beyond just Buddhists. I think it's important to bring someone like Whitehead who already seems to be building bridges um, uh, with his very like pluralistic and uh, cosmopolitan sort of orientation. And, you know, process theology is a really good example, I think, of how Whitehead has really transformed a lot of people and traditions. Yeah. And I love the fact that there are process theologians in the Christian tradition who are like, yeah, God is entirely imminent. And yeah. I, I think that's great. And that's, that's, we need more of that, you know. Right. God is entirely imminent ontologically, but we can still speak of transcendence and speak about it, you know, without having to cross our fingers, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I should get going because I have some things to do before I have to go to bed. But, um, 
yeah, well, we should keep this up, and I'll definitely start to see you on the Whitehead. Uh, yeah, so. and I'm going to invite you to some of the radical theology things to what that we're doing. That sounds awesome. I'm, I would be totally down, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it was really great talking. Thanks for hitting me up. Yeah.